We ask these things in the name of Jesus, the name above every name, the name in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether they want to or not that He is Lord of all. We exalt you tonight and we bask in your presence and we don't take you for granted, but we stand in awe of who you are. Bless this rest of this time we have together tonight. Let every moment, every moment be directed by you, God. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated tonight. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to be with each and every one of you. Let's just dive right in. There are uh, things in this world that are very polarizing. There are things that you people just tend to either they just love a lot, like maybe not love, but like a lot, or, they're, or they, if they don't love it, they despise it. They kind of hate a strong word, but they hate it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And as I begin to like scan my brain for things that people love or hate, these things that there's really no in-between on, there are several things that I could come up with in my head. But then I, I got on the World Wide Web. Anybody ever heard of that? And I, I hope you have. And I started to search, and I think I came up with a, a pretty solid list of things that you'll either like a lot or love or you, you pretty much despise. So here we go. Um, get ready. Don't get upset. But these are things, this is my list anyway. The first thing I'll say on the list, you either love or you hate sushi. Any sushi people in the house? Who in here does like sushi? To, ugh. Okay, I heard of that. Anyway, coffee. If you don't like coffee, I don't know if, I don't know if you know Jesus. But uh, anyway, thank you, Keith. Yes. Pineapple on pizza. I'm going through food first because, yeah, you either love or you hate that. Anyway, dark chocolate. A few of you. Okay, okay. Cilantro. Any big cilantro people in the house? Yes. Polarizing flavor. Pumpkin spice. Guys, it's already here. What's going on? Like, the girls are lined up at Starbucks, and it's insane. Pumpkin spice has dropped in summer. We, we've got to chill out, people. But anyway, moving on from things that aren't, aren't food-related, clowns. I don't know. That was online. I'm like, I don't know anybody that just loves a clown. I see, I see one right over there. Okay, two over there. Very polarizing. Very po Musicals. Okay, you either really dig them or you don't. Okay, okay. The movie Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. Some of you are like, what's that? Check it out. You, you will not regret it. Or you really will. One or the other. Last but not least, Kanye West. Whoa. Let's keep going. These are things that really separate people. I can feel the emotion waves right now. I feel the division in the house and I might need to go sit down. But anyway, those issues are very polarizing. They're not really issues at all. And in the world we live in today, there are a lot of issues that are dividing a lot of people. And there's really no reason in this moment to begin to dive into those things. Because probably a lot of those things are fresh on your mind. Or you don't have a hard time coming up with those things. But I just want to ask you for like the next two hours of this sermon... I just want to ask you to like 
put those things on the back burner for just a little bit. Just try to wipe your mind, clean your mind of those things for just a little bit. And let's get in the thing, the one thing that really matters. Tonight I want to enlighten and remind you of the most, the most important issue, period. Whether people realize it or not, this is the one thing that divides all people. There, this is the one thing that there's no in-between on. This is the one thing that there's no setting on the fence about. The one thing that there's no middle. At the end of all things, at the end of all things, there are two types of people. Just two. Not a hundred, not three, not four, just two. So let's talk about the one thing in these next two hours. The one thing, the one thing that separates us that will carry over into eternity. Matthew 13, 47 through 50 says this. Matthew 13, 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a net. Now nets, when fishermen, what professional fishermen in those days, they did this for a living, they would throw out a net. That's how they fished. They threw out that net, and that net gathered every single type of fish. And they would draw it into their boats, and then they would go to shore, maybe even out, out on the water, and they would begin to sort those fish. they begin to sort them. They'd keep the ones that were good to eat, and they would throw away the ones that they weren't interested in, the ones that didn't eat or wouldn't sell well. So it will be in the end, all will be gathered up, the evil will be separated from the righteous, and the evil will be thrown into hell, the place of eternal torment and torture. In the end, there are two types of people, only two. There are people who are members of the kingdom of darkness, or there are people who are members of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of lights. There are only two. Maybe language you're more familiar with, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either made righteous through Jesus Christ or you are a sinner bound to hell. There is no in-between. You are either a child of God or a child of Satan. Harsh language, but true nonetheless. Jesus Christ came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom. Matthew 3, 2 says this. John the Baptist says this. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message. This is the message that Jesus preached more than any other message. He talked about his kingdom more than anything else. 
Other sermons, other parables might be more well known outside of the church and maybe even inside the church. Others might even be talked about more. But Jesus talked about his kingdom more than he talked about anything else. In Matthew alone, Jesus mentions his kingdom almost 50 times in the book of Matthew alone. And this message of the kingdom is the message that led to the death of Jesus. He didn't get crucified because he come and said, turn the other cheek. That's not what put him on the cross. He didn't get crucified because he said, love your neighbor. That's not what took him to the cross. The message that got him killed was he's proclaiming, I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the king of kings who is coming to bring and build my kingdom here on earth. I'm here, and I'm going to reestablish my kingdom. I'm going to reestablish my people, and I'm going to take over. This is the message that took Jesus to the cross. This is the message that made people despise Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He didn't come to bring unity. Matthew 10, 34 through 36 says this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Mm. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I came to be, bring separation between those who are a part of my kingdom and those who are not. And it's so divisive that it might bring division to your family because when you become a part of what I'm doing, when you become part of my kingdom, there is nothing more divisive because the allegiance to me takes precedence over everyone and everything. But Jesus, when he came, he wasn't exactly the type of king, the type of ruler that people were used to. He wasn't the type of king that the people thought the Old Testament was prophesying about. He wasn't the type of king that people had saw rule on earth. And he did not come establishing his kingdom the way other kings would have. Those who knew of a coming Messiah or those who knew how kings built their kingdoms back then would look a lot like this, kind of. Now, this is very elementary, but anyway, if you were a king, you need a couple things for sure. You need weapons. If you're going to establish a kingdom and you're going to take over, you need weapons. You need swords. You need chariots. You need horses. You need archers. You need bows and arrows. You need lasers. You need anything you can get to take over. If you're looking... Uh, <laughs> If you, uh, I'm laughing at myself, and so I, I got a little distracted. But anyway, I think I'm pretty funny. The type of people you're looking for, you're looking for strong men, you're looking for mean men, you're looking for fighters, you're looking for people who have chopped people's heads off. Amen. You're looking for horsemen, you're looking for jujitsu artists, you're looking for the baddest of the bad. But Jesus, he came fighting with a whole different arsenal. He had a whole different set of weapons, and he came and got a whole lot of different types of people of all kinds that people wouldn't necessarily expect him 
to be gathering and establishing into his kingdom. Jesus came to establish his kingdom, his way. A way that went against the way that men expected it to go. A way that went against the way of culture. His upside down kingdom was established the direct opposite of any earthly kingdom. And tonight I want to speak to you briefly for a few moments. A sermon message, whatever you want to call it, entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. The Upside Down Kingdom. And I will promise I'll only keep you for a couple hours. But first off, first things first, let's let's just give a, a very broad definition, eight-word definition of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You'll see it named one way or the other through the Gospels. Let's put that on the screen if they have it, just so you can see it in front of your faces. Perhaps if they don't, I'll just tell you it's okay. Okay, I'll just tell you. Are you ready? The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people Over God's place. God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's reign. God is king. Jesus came proclaiming, hey, I'm the king. What do kings do? Kings reign. Kings king. They rule. I'm here. I rule over God's creation. Jesus was saying, the king is here and I'm here to reestablish my kingdom, my rule here on earth. God's people Through God's people. God's reign through God's people. God's people. God reigns over all creatures. Whether they realize it or not, God reigns over all creatures, but he also reigns through his people. God reigns through his people. God's people embrace God's rule over every aspect of their life. Jesus came to give new life, a new identity, to redeem people from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of God. God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's place. The Bible is a rescue story. That's what it is. It's not just about God rescuing a sinner from a broken creation that we broke, but it's about him rescuing us for a new creation. God's reign begins in the lives of humans and one day will extend to the ends of the earth. Jesus came to begin the process of reestablishing his kingdom, his way. As already said in Matthew 3, 2, in Matthew 4, 17, for the rest of tonight, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4, 17 through 25. We're about to read that, but before we do... If you were to read the book of Matthew, this is what you'd see. First off, you would see the genealogy of Jesus. Then you would see the birth of Jesus. And then you would see John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. You'd see the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. And then we find ourselves here, Matthew 4. It's our main passage of the night, Matthew 4, 17 through 25. This is what it says. From that time, Jesus began preaching. We'll say it once again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, 
and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. In verse 18, we're introduced to four fishermen. Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, his cousins James, and John. Jesus approaches them. He approaches these four fishermen and it says they immediately stop what they're doing. They stop going the way they're going. They lay everything down. They give everything up. They leave everything to follow Jesus, to become a part of the kingdom he's building and to help him build that kingdom, to help him establish his kingdom on earth. Now, for four fishermen who were professional fishermen, what a sweet job. Four men to do something so drastic, so substantial. In these moments described here in this passage, something substantial had to take place now understand when Jesus approached these four fishermen they at least casually we know they at least casually knew of Jesus we don't exactly know how well we don't believe it was very well but just from studying it out these men knew at least of him but imagine nonetheless someone you just casually know you're pumping gas you're pumping gas, you got your head down, you're minding your business, you're in a hurry, and some, some dude comes up to you and says, hey, listen, stop what you're doing. I'm the king. I'm a king. And I'm here to establish my kingdom on earth, and I want you to come and follow me. Just imagine. What are you going to do? What's your response? Your response is, i got to get out of here. you checking for your wallet. You're like, this guy's a lunatic. No way, no how am I following you. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't some lunatic. Jesus wasn't crazy. Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Jesus was the king, and he showed them that in these moments. That's what Jesus showed them. Now we get, and I'll go here quickly. I, I, I just know we need to dive into this. But Luke 5, 1 through 11 gives us a little bit of a deeper glimpse into what really happened in these moments. Luke 5, 1 through 11. Let's read them. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus, who came to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out to them and were washing their nets. Getting in one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He didn't ask. He just jumped in the boat. <laughs> That's what a king would do, right? He just jumped in and said, hey, do you mind if you push out? Anyway, let's keep going. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And also, saying so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus was teaching next to the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd keeps pressing in. He jumps in Simon Peter's boat. He says, hey, will you just push out a little ways? He does. Jesus teaches. The people start to leave. And Jesus said, hey, go out into the deep. Throw your nets out for a catch. They've been fishing all night. They're like, we fished all night, but okay. Okay. They had a little respect for him after just hearing what he taught. They, they even called him master, teacher. Okay, we'll go out. So they throw out their nets, and to their surprise, they get heavy. So heavy, they start to sink the boat. They fill the boat. They fill the boat, so much so that James and John have to come and help. And they fill, fill both the boats. This is the hall of the millennium. And what was their response? What was Simon's Peter's response? Simon fell down to his knees in his boat, fish all around, flopping all over. And he said, forgive me, I am a sinful man. What just happened in these moments was substantial. It was a miracle. It was the power of God put on display. There is no doubt that for such a, a powerful, drastic response for men to drop their profession, drop what they're doing, leave everything behind and follow Jesus, something substantial had to take place in these men's lives. They had a true encounter with the power and the presence of the God of the universe. And in the midst of this miracle, Jesus says, stop what you're doing. Come and follow me. Let's go catch men. You're not going to be a fisherman anymore. You're going to be a fisher of men. And immediately these four men dropped everything. They followed Jesus. These four men, three of them became the inner circle of Jesus. Peter, James, and John. Andrew, a substantial disciple. All four of them became one of the twelve disciples. But the moment, this moment in Matthew 4, this moment in Luke 5, is the moment that everything in their life changed. This is the turning point for them. Did they fully understand who Jesus was? No, not yet. But they knew what they experienced was genuine, and it was powerful, and they knew it was the presence of God. Did they fully know who Jesus was until he was resurrected? No. But they, they encountered something so strong, something so, power, so, some, so powerful, so genuine, so real, that they dropped it all. They left it in their joy and followed 
him. And I believe in these moments, there are three realizations that these men had. Three. Three realizations that made them drop everything and follow Jesus. And there are three things I hope that you either already realize, and if you do, I want to remind you, and if you don't, because I believe there are people in this, in this place, this number of people, someone doesn't really know Jesus. Someone in here is not really following Jesus. I hope in these moments you realize these, one of these three things are really all three of these things. And number one is this. Peter, Andrew, James, and John realized what they saw and experienced was the presence of God. They knew it. This was the presence of God. Jesus wasn't some crazy lunatic. What they just had happened in their boats, the catch, it wasn't coincidence, it wasn't magic, it wasn't luck. This was the work of God. This was the power of God put on display that each of them experienced. What happened in these moments was more than just hair standing up on the back of your neck. It was more than just goosebumps. It was more than just getting emotional. You can get all those things at a concert that has nothing to do with Jesus. You can get goosebumps. You can get the hair on stand up on the back of your neck. You can cry, get emotional watching Toy Story 3. You can experience those things if you're in a room with the right Someone speaks with the right cadence, the right lights, the right music. You experience all those things that have nothing, and they have, those things don't necessarily have anything to do with the kingdom of God, but what they, or the, the presence of God, but what they experienced that day was something so powerful, so miraculous, so awe-striking, so wondrous. They experienced the presence of God, and in that moment, in that time, they, that is what yielded such a powerful response. I leave everything I once knew. Everything I know, I'm leaving it behind and I'm responding to the call of Jesus to follow him. They didn't hesitate. They weren't sad to leave it all behind. It almost seems as if, I can't say for sure, but it almost seems as if they didn't even worry about their catch. It says they immediately stopped what they were doing and they followed Jesus. And it was their joy to do so, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. Before I move on to realization number two, this is what I want to address for a moment. It's the presence of God. I know I'm repeating myself, but it's the presence of God that compelled these men to follow Jesus. And it's the presence of God that compels us to do the same. John 6, 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the presence of God that brought these four fishermen to a place of decision. The presence of God. It's the presence of God that brings us to a place of decision. God is the one who brings people to Jesus. God is the one 
who brings people to Jesus and God's presence is what brings us to a place of decision. But too often, people have tried to change a formula that cannot be changed. Because this is the way it is. You can't change it, and it's never going to change. And what I'm about to say, I have to be very careful because I do not want to be misunderstood. And to be honest with you, I could be easily misunderstood in these moments. So just try to pay attention and bear with me. Too often, in different types of scenarios and events and, and camps and big things, big events that the church puts on, too often people are manipulated into a response. Let me explain myself. When someone is speaking the right way, with the right cadence, like I already said earlier, the right lights, people know how to stir your emotions. People, you can have your emotions stirred at a concert. In those moments trying to manipulate, trying to force people into response, saying it's easy. All you got to do is just lift up your hand. It's that easy. I'm not saying all those things I just said are wrong. I'm not saying at big events, in those moments when people raise their hand and respond to Jesus, that none of those are genuine, that it's not the presence of God. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is it's not our job to get anyone to respond to the call of God. That is not my job. That is not your job. It's our job to give people an opportunity to respond. It's our job to let God's presence draw men to Jesus. Not our fancy words, not our fancy formulas, not our emotion-stirring ways, but God. That's how it works. That's why there are churches all over the place full of people and youth groups who sit in church services or wherever, all over the place. They had a moment in a service. They got baptized, and they think they're good. They think everything's peachy between them and God. All the while, it wasn't God's presence that drew them at all. And that's why there was no real life change. No real heart change. And I looked and I tried to find this quote that I found a long time ago. But there was this, there was this preacher who prayed, preached humongous crusades. And it wasn't Billy Graham. It was another one. And I cannot find it. I can't find it for the life of me. But in these events, hundreds, thousands of people would come. And they would, they would respond and someone asked him about that. What do you think about that? Do you think all of those responses were genuine? And he said, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really know. It's really not my job to know. But what I will tell you is let's look at their life in six months or a year and let's see if those responses were really genuine. It's not our job nor anyone else's job to bring people to Jesus. It's our job to show people Jesus. It's not our job to try to manufacture with our own hands and power and minds and ability. It's not our job to manufacture anything, but instead to let God's genuine presence 
do his genuine work. That's our job as Christians. Let it be the presence of God that draws people to Jesus. Let it be the presence of God that draws people and forces people to a decision. Let it be his presence that causes people to either reject the call or to give in to the call. And I pray in the palaces of praise, I pray in churches across the world that it be the presence of God that brings people to a place of decision. I pray that in these last days that the presence be so strong among brothers and sisters in Christ when we gather together, so strong when we're having conversations with people we work with or do life with. Let the presence of God be so strong that men and women are forced to either give in to the call of God or run. Let it be his presence. His presence. I want the presence of God in the next level of youth. I proclaim these things in Jesus' name to be so strong that sinners can't come and set and be comfortable in their life of sin. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We have to move on. Realization number two. These four men, and we see especially Peter, realized I'm unrighteous. I'm a sinner. Luke 5, 8. When Simon Peter saw the catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus said, it's okay. Come follow me. One of two things happen when we get in the presence of God. One of two responses. In the presence of God, you either realize how small, dirty, disgusting you are, or if you're in Christ Jesus, you just get caught and lost in his wonder, wonderful majesty and awe. One of two responses happen in God's presence. When a sinner is faced with the presence of God, it will expose their sin to them. That's why when the genuine presence is moving, people get who, who don't know Jesus, they get uncomfortable. It's like they got ants in their pants. That's why they get up and they go to the water fountain. That's why they get up and get a drink. That's why they're on their phone. Because they're squirming. They're squirming. The message of the kingdom was of God. Repent. Repent. Stop everything you're doing. Stop. You live in, you're a part of, you're bound by the kingdom of darkness. Every part of you is infected and affected by sin. You're a sinner by nature. You don't just have a problem, you are the problem. But Jesus said, I have good news. 
I have come to give evil a name. I've come to, come to confront sin. I've come to deal with it so sinners can be washed clean, forgiven of their sin, made righteous in Christ Jesus, and be free from the guilt and the power of sin. Jesus came declaring, I am the king of the kingdom, and I am here. I am the long-awaited Messiah. I'm here. I'm forming an alternate new people. I'm confronting evil and the effects of evil, the destructive effects of evil in people's lives. I'm here to confront it. I'm here to liberate people from the kingdom of this world and I'm inviting them to be free and to live under my rule and to live under my reign and be a part of the kingdom of God. They no longer have to walk in darkness but instead they're in my kingdom and they are mine and we walk in light. <coughs> Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Third and final thing, third and final realization these four men have that I hope you have. They realized the value of Jesus. They realized his value. Jesus was trying all throughout his ministry and still trying today to get people to realize just how valuable he really is. And that's what we find, Jesus proclaiming the message of the kingdom. We were already in Matthew 13. Let's go back for just a moment. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, his joy, he goes and sells all he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. The first parable we see is the parable of the treasure. This story is kind of strange to us in the day we live in. We have banks. Banks are a lot different than they used to be. Back in those days, people would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. They would take their valuables and they would go bury them in a secret place, a weird place that people wouldn't think to find them. So who Jesus was talking to, they knew exactly what he was talking about. But in this instance, whoever buried, buried this treasure forgot about it. They forgot. And this person happened to stumble on this treasure that he wasn't looking for. But when they found it, when they found it, the thing they weren't looking for, they dropped everything, they sold everything, and they bought that field. And it says, it was his joy. Joy. He understood the value of what he found. Then we see the next parable. The parable of the pearl of great value. The man who finds this pearl was actively searching for it. Symbolizing the people who are searching. The people who know 
that something is wrong. The people who know that there's something more. The people who are looking, asking questions, wondering, is there a God? Wondering why they're here, searching for purpose, searching for answers. This person was searching for this pearl. And they found it. Sold everything. And bought it. For those who are either searching or surprised by the news of the kingdom. The kingdom is worth losing everything for. When we encounter Jesus, when we hear his good news, just like the four fishermen that day that came with disciples, we joyfully let go of all things to grab hold of and pursue the one thing. Salvation through Christ, following him, becoming a part of his kingdom. It's free. You can't pay for it and you can't earn it, but it's going to cost you everything. And that's the call. Peter, James, Andrew, John, that's the call they got that day. That's the call Jesus gives that day. It's not just a call to just slip your hand up, pray a prayer, and everything's good. No, it's a call to... Die. When Jesus calls us, it's a call to come and die so you may live. It's going to cost you everything. It's a flip your world upside down kind of call where everything changes the way you think the relationships you have with people, the way you speak, what you value, what your priorities are, the way you view the world around you. When you are in Christ, when you are a part of God's kingdom, you die to what you once knew, you die to what the culture says, and you give that up. You give up that mentality, that way of life, and you give up everything to follow and become a part of God's kingdom. But when we realize the value of Jesus, it will be our joy to die. I hope it's your joy. If it's not your joy, I pray that you experience, counter, see, and taste that it should be in Jesus' name. To let go of all things in order to passionately take hold of the one thing. Will you stand with me?